Hey, pull up a chair. Attacks on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. Hey, Ax, how you doing? We got a lot going on with impeachment. Hey, brother. Big week, huh? Yeah, something else. We got Mayor Pete calling him from Iowa, but tons to talk about. Yeah, well, and including a genuine bona fide five-alarm constitutional crisis that has huge political implication. You've even entered into the fray, I see. Yeah, no, I uh, I have a, a op-ed out in the Washington Post. We're, we're linked to it uh, on our website, uh, hacksontap.com, where I make the argument that in the with the Ukrainian crisis, unless the president can release a transcript of the call like an hour ago and clear himself, but he seems to be busy trying to do anything but that, uh, this one's a no-brainer, sadly enough. I think the House ought to vote impeachment because I want them to do what Wall Street guys call mark this to market. In other words, get out of the essay question answers the Republicans all do where, oh, I love the judges, but yeah, the tone's a little bad, don't like the tweets, blah, blah, blah. And yay or nay, vote on Trump, force it. I think the country deserves that clarity now because the president has, he's not stepped over the line, he's done a flying leap over the line. So there's something bigger than an election or a Republican primary. And I want to push these cats into a corner and see where they stand. Yeah, no, I listen, I, I hear what you're saying. And there is this, you know, there is such a thing as a responsibility, a duty to act. But I, I think the politics are more complicated. And I've said this before, you know, you got 40% of the country that's going to be completely convinced that this is a partisan exercise. That's where all the energy on the Republican side is going to be. And you know he's not going to be removed from office. And the question is, does it strengthen Trump or weaken him? And you may call it a political question, but think about this. If Donald Trump is impeached and acquitted and there's uh, losses in the House as a result of it, and he gets reelected, and now he's on the other side of all this, unbridled by the prospect of re-election. I mean, that is a real possibility here. And I think, you know, Pelosi has approached this responsibly. We may have reached the tipping point. It may be impossible once these facts come out. And you talk about the transcript. I think the transcript is far less important than the whistleblower report, which is apparently more involved and perhaps more devastating than even we know. Yeah. So last night, you know, not only were you in the Washington Post, but seven moderate members of the House, first term reps who were elected in swing districts, all of them veterans of either the military or the intelligence community. And they made a national security and sort of constitutional argument that said, if these facts are what they appear to be, we've reached the point of impeachment. Yeah, I think I take your point. I I thought impeachment was a political bungle for the Democrats for exactly that reason in the past, because it'll get litigated. Trump will get, quote unquote, cleared, albeit in a hugely partisan way. And maybe that gives them a restart. But I think the difference now beyond the what ought to happen based on the line that he's crossed is that if this gets litigated, this is much simpler than the complicated Mueller probe into Trump's knucklehead henchmen. This is Donald Trump on the phone shaking down the president of the Ukraine to help him out politically and holding back, we now think, possibly, right. vital arms shipments to defend his country, which has huge corruption problems, but is yeah. far more democratic than Putin's Russia. 
uh, from invasion. So that narrative will get played over and over and over again. And I'm not sure it'll chip Trump's 40% down that much, but it sure won't grow. And so I think net net, even if the Republicans exonerate him, and this is where I know you think I'm smoking crack, but I've talked to a couple of Republican senators. There is more hostility over this inside almost, the Senate. I only think you're smoking crack because I've seen this movie before. Yeah. I mean, every time, you know, there's a there's a sort of pattern to this. We get, you know, uh, silence and then, well, we need to see all the facts and then the facts come and it's, well, you know, these are partisan sources or and they basically, you know, run for cover. Uh, the question I have for you is, is a, a, a political question. Are there any Republicans who actually would pay a price for not voting for impeachment or not voting to convict the president? Yes. I mean, I think the general thinking is that, you know, they the the big danger for them is to run afoul of Trump. Yeah. No, that's the that's the conventional wisdom. But if you're Cory Gardner and your choice is to vote no on impeachment, assuming the case is as strong as it appears to be now, and you go into that purple state or your Collins, right, Susan Collins. Uh, or McSally in Arizona trying yes. to defend the indefensible, you're toast. I think, frankly, and I make this argument in the op-ed, it, it wouldn't be easy, but they'd rather have Pence and Trump in the rearview mirror. It, it's still a tough race for him, but it's better. Yeah, man. I think this is really high stakes stuff. What about your old, uh, what about some of these people who are leaving, including your old client, Lamar Alexander? What do people like that do? Or do you know something that you can't say? Well, I, uh, I think my, all I can say is stay tuned on that one. I think if, if it's as bad as it appears to be, and this is something we're going to have clarity pretty quick because he's either going to release the material or he's not. And that's an admission of guilt if he doesn't. And this thing buffaloes through an impeachment vote. I'll be very interested to see what some of those folks do. Now, will it be enough in the Senate to, you know, to get all the way? Um, I don't know. I, I, the partisan tribal magnet is very strong, but I, I think also, and you know, I'm, I'm a partisan Republican, but I think the voters deserve clarity from the Republican party. If we're going to be the Trump party, even under this, uh, there ought to be a clear, unambiguous hell yes. And let us pay the price for that politically. What about Biden? And, you know, uh, in the short run, I think it rallies Democrats to him. Yeah, that's a big question. Uh, there is this vulnerability. It's not. It's not the thing that Trump said. You heard his his clip suggesting that if a Republican did what Biden did, they get the electric chair. Joe Biden and his son are corrupt. All right, but the fake news doesn't want to report it because they're Democrats. If that ever happened, if a Republican ever did what Joe Biden did. If a Republican ever said what Joe Biden said, they'd be getting the electric chair by right now. Look at the double standards. You people ought to be ashamed of yourself. And not all. We have some great journalists around. But you got a lot of crooked journalists. You're crooked as hell. The fact is, there's no evidence that Biden did anything improper. There is this question about his son uh, and what he was doing working with a dirty oligarch in Ukraine while his father was the vice president. Yeah. Is that enough to scuff up? Biden? Well, it reminds me, it, it, it strikes me as it's kind of Donald Nixon burgers meets Billy Carter on steroids, you know, under the idiot relative, uh, uh, making Hugh Rodham, making mistakes clause, but to dire directly link it to Biden, I think is, is unfair. That said, you're right. Even though this thing, it, Trump transgressed, the subtext is repeating this charge about Biden that Trump partisans will grab and say, aha, they're doing it already. So yeah, I think there could be collateral damage. Short term, it should help Biden. But then it, you get back to the existential question about Biden. 
can he perform through a Democratic primary when there's a lot of interest in the new face? And is this only a short-term bump of sympathy and the fundamental problems of Biden not being able to be a very attractive candidate? Well, it does give him an opportunity, though, Mike, to he he's always wanted to advance this to the general. Having a face-off with Trump serves his purposes. Yes. But clearly, Trump has a long-term play here, which is to try and erode Biden, who's now leading in, you know, the Fox News poll had him up, I think, by 12, 13 points just this last week. And that's been pretty consistent, which is obviously freaking Trump out. I mean, that's why he tried the squeeze play with the Ukrainians. Let, let me give you a counter argument, and it's not me making it. I, I will make my own. But I had George Will, who you know well, on my Axe Files podcast this week. And, you know, he is an even more fervent anti-Trumper than yourself. Impossible. <laughs> it's a fair fight. Yeah, no, I think I, a heavy competition there. And he was pretty blunt about his view on impeachment. Let's listen to that clip. I don't want them to move forward because I want the man to leave. Uh, it seems to me that they're apt to make uh, the kind of mistake that Republicans made with Bill Clinton in 1998. We have an election right over the horizon. You want to get rid of Trump, have a, the cure for a bad election is a better election. Well, that's exactly where I was impeachment until the Ukrainians sell out. And unless the president can exonerate himself, I think he has crossed a line where the political calculation George is making is no longer on point. But the national polling is, it's still kind of a placeholder for not Trump. And Biden being the most famous Dem and most well-liked is holding that card, but if he can't, you know, the Iowa numbers, which we're going to talk about in a minute, are pretty grim for Biden, the trend anyway. Maybe this will regenerate it because that was taken, the Iowa poll was taken before all this. But whether or not he can sustain and perform as a candidate is still the big Joe Biden question, I think. The Iowa numbers are ones we should get to. The Iowa poll is sort of the gold standard of Holy Iowa Grail. polling. Yeah. That, uh, Ann Seltzer, the pollster for the Des Moines Register, did this in conjunction with CNN, showed uh, Warren sort of marginally in the lead, really a tie. She was at 22, Biden 20, but Biden has steadily declined. She's more popular than he is. Uh, more people are open to considering her than they are to him. And maybe most tellingly, her the enthusiasm numbers for her are much higher, which, as you know, in a caucus is very important. The Biden people have begun to say, and this is what I want to ask you about, Greg Schultz, his manager, who apparently was on uh, our buddy David Pluff's new podcast and said that they don't really need to win the first two states, that they're in for the long game. And once you get clear of the first two states, they're going to steadily accumulate, win primaries and accumulate delegates. And, you know, that's a colorable argument, but it's never really been done effectively before. Yeah, I hope the lad takes bets because I'm willing to put up some money on that one. I think somebody's stolen my Republicans will do the right thing, crack and spread it around over there. Because <laughs> if Biden, who's supposed to be the winner, can't win, that equation dunks him pretty fast. It was interesting. I, As I mentioned, I was in uh, Iowa and New Hampshire over the last few days doing the, you know, kind of shoe leather reporting that we're famous for here on Hacks on Tap. And I met with a bunch of Republican hacks who really know Iowa, been around since my days working for Governor Branstead. And I was stunned at how short they were on Biden there. Mm -hmm. They said, look, it's Warren and everybody else, which means Warren's guaranteed top two. Even if she went into a coma tomorrow, probably she'd still wind up top two in Iowa right now, number one. 
So the question is how big the Biden wounding is going to be, and he could get to third. They would not be at all surprised. So again, you know, the caucus, it can change. We're now getting into the the big finish uh, and the sprint here. But um, I think if they get clobbered twice and the Biden narrative is gaff-prone loser, uh, and I'm not sure his FEC report, you know, the big money reports are coming out, which are going to be, I think, disastrous for some of the candidates. I'm not sure Biden's going to show all that much either. So he'll open another front of weakness. Now, there's always a New Hampshire comeback for him because I think that state fits him better. But that's a big if wish. T- two lo- losses. I think he's done. It's also a home game for Warren and to some degree Bernie right. Sanders. By the way, Sanders down to 11 percent in the Iowa poll. And she's really eroding his support. Yeah. I don't know how low it could go, but it really seems as if, you know, he is kind of frozen where he is at best. And yet he'll keep going on because he has money. Yeah. She's treating him like a big pharmaceutical company. And, you know, (laughs) despite the truce, I don't think he likes it. If I were him, I'd be on television pushing her in a corner on Medicare for all, saying she doesn't really believe it. Because the interesting caucus number two outside the horse race was among Iowa caucus, you know, participants, it not so popular. There's a real road there for somebody to grab that majority support that has doubts about her plan and push back a little. Just uh, on that point, uh, as we speak today, Bernie released a plan that is a uh, a heavier tax on the wealthy than the one that Warren has proposed. So he's mm. what a great auction. He's in a. Uh, He's in a uh, feverish campaign to certify that he is the real item when it comes to the left. I've got a bumper sticker pitch real quick on that. Bernie should go with, don't take a Menshlevik when you can get a Bolshevik. (laughs) Yeah, pass it along. I'm sure Bernie's listening right (laughs) now. (laughs) Massachusetts, Joe Kennedy, the uh, young uh, congressman from Massachusetts, obviously sign of the Kennedy family. Uh, there, a magic name in Massachusetts, decides to jump in the race for the U.S. Senate there, challenging an incumbent Democrat. Yeah, Ed Markey. And, you know, the poll suggests that Kennedy uh, has leads. interesting because the establishment is behind Markey, but he also has Elizabeth Warren support his colleague. Joe Kennedy introduced Elizabeth Warren at, the, uh, at her announcement. He uh, has... Uh, AOC uh, on his side because he was the sponsor right. of the Green New Deal. I think Kennedy's a really appealing guy, smart guy, you know, running on this new generation theme, which, by the way, will be interesting. If we'll have a Democratic nominee by the time the Massachusetts primary takes place, which is late in September. He'll be out there making a new generation argument. It may be that you have a 76-year-old nominee at that time. If Biden's the nominee, Warren herself is 70. But I think Kennedy probably wins this race. But uh, Markey is a plucky guy. Yeah. He's well-liked by the party establishment in the state. He's got this guy, John Walsh, who I know well as his campaign manager, really shrewd former state chair. Help. He was very involved with Deval Patrick when I was working for him. And Saul Shore, a media consultant yep. who uh, you and I both know well, one of the best in the business. Mm -hmm. I think it's still going to be a brawl. Yeah. I think you and I have the same consultant spider sense tingling on this one, which is the conventional wisdom is shiny new Kennedy with the magic name is going to wipe out the old dinosaur. The Kennedy folks leaked some polling out early before he announced showing he'd easily beat him in the primary. So it's all Kennedy. 
But now he has to go into that car wash of a Massachusetts political arena that we both worked in. And I kind of like it, it, if Markey is fast on his feet and becomes the aggressor here and Kennedy becomes the stumbling front runner trying to protect a lead and Markey's adroit and combative, I I think he may, this thing may be much harder for Kennedy than he thinks. I have the same kind of gut instinct, but that generational theme, as you said, could be powerful. And Kennedy was all over it in his announcement. Let's hear a little sound of that. Now is not the time for waiting, for sitting on the sidelines, for playing by rules that don't work anymore or never worked to begin with. Donald Trump has forced a reckoning in America. But meeting this moment requires more than just confronting him. We deserve leaders who will show up where we are, who aren't afraid to break down an old system and build something better. A healthcare system of salvation, not scarcity. A just economy. Absolute civil rights. Humane immigration policy. Un sistema de justicia de equidad, no de opresión. A collective will to tackle our climate crisis so that we will have a planet that will survive for our kids and our grandkids. A new politics, a new future, a new chance for everyone who calls this country home. In this moment, we refuse to accept the status quo that tells us that big things are impossible, progressive dreams unreachable. I'm running for Senate because this is the fight of our lives, and I'm all in. That was his announcement video. The the message is very, very clear. He went all over the state, and interestingly, he went to western Massachusetts, southern Massachusetts, places where Democrats don't normally Mm -hmm. go. He's good. He's a good candidate. And the question just is whether people say, we like you, we're just not going to fire that guy. That's it. uh, Because you want to move up. What's the firing offense on Markey, the comfortable shoe who's been in all the fights, versus Kennedy being defined either generationally, which will help him, or purely by ambition, which won't. And that is a tough arena. You know, people in Massachusetts like a full, theatrical, big, long, complicated campaign. So we're... We'll see what happens, but I don't count Markey out. A couple more elements of this Iowa poll before we uh, chat with Mayor Pete. One was uh, Kamala Harris, who's declined in Iowa as she has nationally. What does she have to do, do you think, to retool her? She, she said she's moving to Iowa, which she probably should have done about six months ago because it was obvious she needed to do well there. Yeah, she's it's just been stumble bum city since that debate moment. You know, they were they were going to go on a big fundraising tour cuz that end of September report was probably going to be pretty bad or income dropped off. If you if you don't have good polls or great debates, donors give up and you know, this is a time when your spending goes up and if your income goes down, you're in that deadly crush. Then they did a big 180 and said, no, no, we're going to forget the fundraising and move to Iowa. I thought that was a preemptive move to get the press ready for a bad cash on hand report and do the only thing left, which is the voter breakthrough. She's got time to sell some tickets there. But, you know, I was looking at her fave unfavorable on the register yeah. poll. I was looking at her global favorable, which I kind of call the shopping list. You know, yeah. they may not be voting for you, but they're, you're on their radar and they like you. And the numbers aren't good. Her ratio is not good. They're not liking her that much. So I think she... And in a similar way, Amy, who's also probably Amy got the Klosher. cash on hand program, we'll see, uh, are both in the same squeeze. And that, that is good news for our, our caller today, Mayor Pete, because he's got that huge pile of cash. He's hard to kill. He can keep going, kind of like Bernie. And his global favorable was he doesn't have the ballot yet. He's in third at nine percent, but he's creeping right up there behind number one, Warren and Biden, number two. So 
it was, I thought, a good poll for him and a great poll for Warren. Not so good for everybody else. There is good news in this poll for Pete. In fairness, he isn't creeping up. He was creeping down. He went from 15 to, in their last poll, to nine here. And I think that reflects the fact that he, he, he had kind of a plateau. But it seems like he's shifted his rhetoric now and is much more uh, trying to seize that center-left lane. Yeah, uh, He's critiqued the Warren-Bernie proposals, Medicare for All in particular. He's talking the language of uh, unity rather than division. Um, he's trying to carve a lane out for himself here beyond the new generation piece. And uh, it, it feels like he's getting a little more energy. Yeah, it's that gear shift we've been talking about. He has decent television up. He can afford to have it. You know, he, he may be the third place wonder that never breaks through. But I, I, I think that global favorable, if he can start converting that to ballot going forward, uh, he could be a top three contender. And Beto didn't get any lift off the gun thing. I, I thought he would. Beto, yeah. Beto, Beto. Yeah, Beto. Uh, <laughs> Beto, Beto. Uh, no, no, but I'm not correcting the name. Yeah, Beto, uh, disappointing for him. There was a national poll that had him at 1%. Uh, uh, so no, he didn't get, I thought he would get more as well. There are nine people still in the race. De Blasio dropped out last week. There are nine yeah. people in this poll who have negative ratings. In other words, they're underwater on their favorable yep. and they have two or less percent. And so the question is, what the hell are they doing? Why are they still in this race? Right. And even the moderates who could beat Trump Easily, the Bullocks and the Bennetts, their Iowa caucus numbers, they're only small on the ballot. Their favorable unfavorables are really bad. So they're getting a telegram for the voters, which is nice try. But ultimately, it's always the checking account that kills these hopes. And I think by Thanksgiving, we're going to see a bunch of them out of the race. Do people actually get telegrams anymore? I don't know. <laughs> we do in the Republican Party because our voters do. are older and wiser. We we uh, <laughs> we play records like uh, like Senator Biden. We, we go to the talkies. You know, my old joke is uh, the Republican Party is so old that you can see our army coming. And then I mimic a walker step by step by step. But uh, yeah, so we, we still do telegrams, telexes even. So let's talk to a guy who doesn't need a walker, uh, Mayor Pete, who's on his bus. The what? The, the reincarnation of your straight, straight talk express. Call my lawyer. Mayor Pete, good to be with you. You're on your bus. I hear you just left uh, Dubuque. And we'll get to all of that. We, kind of got to get to the news of the day first, which is this burgeoning scandal in Washington over the president's dealings with Ukraine. Uh, and overnight, seven of your fellow veterans, freshman members of the House, suggested that if these facts prove out that they believed he's committed an impeachable event, wh where do things stand? Now, you've called for impeachment in the past. Does it look to you like it's going to become a reality? It looks more like that every day. And the, the main person, of course, driving the push toward impeachment is the president himself. The letter from the seven members is, I think, extraordinary, both because they are patriots who have served and because they're from more moderate districts who would be uh, some of the least likely to do anything precipitously. Now, having said that, we have got to be able to do two things at once because these towns I'm visiting in Iowa, you know, most people have already made up their mind about this president. So uh, I think constitutionally, the House has a responsibility to defend the rule of law. Uh, I think as somebody running for office, I have a responsibility to make sure we 
continue talking about the issues that if they hadn't gone unaddressed or unresolved in recent years, we might not be here with a president like this in the first place. On this impeachment question, though, before we move on uh, from it, what is the downside of it? You, you mentioned that people have made up their minds, but people have made up their minds on the other side of the divide as well. And you've got 40 percent of the country who are being worked over right now by the president and his supporters to believe that this is an, a, another partisan witch hunt and a bloodless coup. We know the Senate will probably reject any finding. Is it possible that it actually could help Trump and that you end up on the other side with a reelected Trump? a uh, depleted house and, uh, you know, his he, he with untrammeled power? There's certainly a risk that it just takes on a dynamic of its own. It winds up having its own story, its own heroes and villains, and becomes a distraction both from the president's wrongdoing and from the other issues that are on voters' minds. But uh, I think that uh, that's a question of how well it's managed. And uh, I don't think that something of this gravity is something you look through a political lens with. I think you have to have some measure of faith in our Constitution that if you do the right thing, then politically there will either not be a consequence or, or be a positive result. Yeah, I think this thing is so huge. There's so much clarity, unless the president can release a transcript like an hour ago that totally clears them, that there's really no choice. We owe the voters the clarity of an impeachment vote. And I, I personally think that the Dems ought to do it because I'd like to see the Republicans be put on the spot. Yes or no. But moving on to, you know, the Iowa uh, caucus, we have new registered numbers out that we were talking about. Ax and I were here on the podcast. I think there's some good news for you beyond the ballot moving up to third place. If you look at the favorable rating, you're only a click behind uh, uh, Warren and Vice President Biden, which tells me you could be on the shopping list there as kind of an understudy to Biden. Do you see the votes that you need to break into top two in Iowa coming more out of the Warren-Bernie camp, which means maybe more the sort of ideological stuff you, you were talking about on Medicare for All, or out of maybe Biden supporters who, who want a generational change? I think uh, probably a little bit of both. Look, if you have decided you want the furthest left candidate possible, then you've already got your choice. And if you've decided you want the candidate with the most time spent in Washington, then, then of course, you've got your choice there, too. Uh, everybody else, I think, is available for us to convince to vote for us. And the other number I thought was very important in that piece, I don't look at the horse race numbers too much, although it's nice to see that we're, we're in the mix. But the fact that most voters haven't made up their mind, I think one in five said they were sure. And uh, what's interesting is on the trail, on the rope line, after I come down from the stage at an event, uh, voters are telling me that they are starting to make up their minds, that they're coming to these events. Uh, before, I think they were coming to these events just looking to kind of see what you're about and get to know you. Now they're coming to these events looking to be convinced. And uh, that's what the next few weeks and months will be about. And there's a lot of votes on the table for us, including among the people who maybe right now are telling pollsters that they're for one of the other candidates. You're right that there are voters who have made their decision on the left. It looks like Bernie and um, Elizabeth Warren are holding about 40 percent of the vote and they're shifting off here. But Biden has a a, a following among uh, moderate Democrats, you know, moderately liberal Democrats, conservative Democrats. How do you break through with those voters? Well, first of all, we should uh, speak to voters who are concerned about electability. Uh, I think this can be a little self-defeating because you need to 
Uh, I think you need to pick the person you think is most inspiring and would make the best president because the person who would make the best president tends to make the best candidate too. But uh, I also think that uh, we have an opportunity to point out to those who are really just saying, hey, I'll vote for whatever it takes to beat the current president, that every single time Democrats have won in the last 50 or 60 years, it's been putting up a candidate who was of a newer generation and hadn't been in Washington very long. And every single time, literally every single time, we have put up the most established person, the uh, most familiar person, often a vice president. Every single time we've done that, we've come up short. So I think folks who are concerned about winning will, uh, as they hear our case, I believe they can be can be drawn into this campaign. And, and also folks who are just looking to be inspired. I think a lot of people will name the most familiar name while they are uh, still open to others. And the question is whether we can persuade them in time. And uh, of course, we've got about the about four months before the bell rings here in Iowa. Let me just ask you a question about Elizabeth Warren, who is surging, not just in Iowa, but in national polling as well. Uh, You've been much more vociferous lately about your feelings about this Medicare for All plan that would eliminate private insurance. Are you concerned that her positions would make her less electable? Well, above all, I'm concerned about this, not just from a political perspective, but a governing perspective. If we want to deliver major, major healthcare reform or any of the other things we're talking about, uh, we got to do it in a way that doesn't further polarize the country or, or turn off uh, half of Americans. Remember that one, maybe one of the most remarkable things about the political moment we're in is there is a strong American majority for every single thing we are proposing to do: raising wages, delivering paid family leave, expanding access to healthcare, reforming immigration, doing something about guns. Uh, even issues where we've been on, on defense for some time, there is a, an American majority. The key to not just winning the election, but to governing effectively as the president is going to be engaging that majority because remarkably, almost shockingly, the situation in Washington is the exact reverse. And there is not a majority for any of these major agenda items that the American people insist something be done about. It includes climate. Uh, it includes uh, what's being done around choice. Pretty much every big issue. Uh, there's an American majority for what we seek to do. We need a president and a candidate who can engage that American majority. That was a solid answer and well thought through answer. And I've heard you give it before. But my specific question was, do you think it's a liability going into the general election to have positions like the elimination of private insurance in the next four years or, or for that matter, decriminalization of the border? Does that create distractions that can be exploited by the president? Well, it's certainly, uh, especially on the idea of kicking people off their private health care, something that most Americans don't want. And uh, anytime you're, you're proposing the run for president, if one of your signature issues is something a problem. Yeah, I can tell you from Republican land that we've been waiting 30 years to pay back that Democratic 1982 ad with the Social Security card being cut in half with the big scissors, and that will work with a blue cross card too, uh, as the Democrats will find out should it, should it be a candidate for that agenda. But I want to pivot over to some process stuff quickly. First of all, I've been seeing some press photos with uh, you on a bus surrounded by reporters. It feels oddly familiar. So <laughs> kudos on that maneuver there. Uh, royalty checks can be sent to the McCain Foundation. Mike Murphy is the author of the Straight Talk Express so we consider this bus tour of yours an homage to McCain and Murphy. 
Well, no, there were there were many authors, but thank you for that. Uh, but what I want to ask you is a question that absolutely no voter cares about, but almost every hack uh, is talking about obsessively, which is the FEC report is coming up, which is when the candidates have to reveal how much they've spent, how much they've raised, and how much cash they have to fuel the big finish in Iowa and on to New Hampshire. So a lot of your competition and kind of the one click behind co-front runners Warren and Biden are running out of oxygen. They're going to a place I call Plentyville for you political insiders, where you run out of money before the voting really starts. You have a big pile of cash. Do you want to make a little process news here and give us a peek at your FBC? What kind of cash on hand do you think you're going to show? Uh, I'm not going to make any news right now, but I will say <laughs> we're, we're glad we got uh, the resources to go the distance. Yeah, I think some of your competition, Amy and Corey, are in a tough spot, and it'll be very interesting to see what their numbers look like. Uh, I agree. Back to the initial story on Biden. You know, there is obviously a furious effort on the part of the president to inject this Ukraine story into the debate. And there is no evidence that Biden uh, acted improperly here. But there are questions about why his son was getting $50,000 a month from this Ukrainian oligarch. Do you think these things will hurt Biden or will there be a rallying around him? among Democrats who recognize that the president has gone way over the line? It's hard to say what what all of the implications will be, but I certainly hope that we do not allow the president through naked wrongdoing to change the subject or uh, tar an opponent. And I also think we got to remember that this president will find a vulnerability no matter who he's up against. And if there isn't one uh, in terms of baggage or a problem, then he'll just make something up. That's that's what they do. And so I, I think we have a responsibility to focus on what is actually the news here, which is the president's confession of wrongdoing. And it is a confession, even though it was delivered in a blustery manner. Uh, and at the same time, not let that change the story from the things that the voters are meeting on the ground here in Iowa are actually asking about. You, uh, you know, it always struck me that your temperament might actually drive Donald Trump nuts. In the sense that you you are very unflappable, you don't tend to take the bait. Is that the best approach to dealing with him? I think so. Or at least it's uh, an approach that's working for us. You can tell he, he hasn't quite figured out what to do with me. And uh, you know, as, as somebody who is uh, maybe a little too flappable, I think he represents <laughs> a style of presidency that the Americans want to move away from. So every candidate in the staff always knows because they talk about it. Has oh, that's the thing that 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 is bugging them, you know, that is their fear about what could go sideways in the campaign, keeps them up at night. What's yours? What do you worry about the most as you try to make the next hundred days really count? Well, it's making sure that we cover the distance. Uh, You know, we started this thing with four people, uh, an email list that's about the size of the state legislative campaign. And it has ballooned into uh, this extraordinary team and and, and effort that we've got going and, and we're continuing to grow it and make sure that we uh, we reach the finish line in good shape. We've got 100 organizers on the ground here in Iowa. We're building out in all of the early states. But because we came from more or less obscurity in January, we don't have a second to lose. And we've got to make sure that we make every connection that we can, that we don't fool ourselves into thinking that because we're getting a lot of coverage, everybody knows us, knows what we're about, and knows the reasons that, that we believe they should vote for us. We have to uh, sprint the marathon in many ways. And uh, uh, I spent a lot of time making sure that we uh, we get that done. You you mentioned earlier that there was a, an openness that people hadn't really fully committed to their 
candidates in Iowa, so there's a fluidity, at least among the top. You you are among those people who are very much in contention for their support, but you lost six points in this Iowa poll. There are all these indications of something positive, including uh, in the Iowa poll, people said overwhelmingly they'd prefer a candidate who represents a new generation of leadership over one who has a long history of serving in government. I presume that that goes to your reference earlier. But how do you convert, Pete? What do you need to do? Is it the electability issue that is holding you back? Or what is keeping people from converting to you as they have to some degree to Elizabeth Warren? I think a lot of the final decisions and conversions happen probably in the last 10 days or so of the race. I think everything between now and then is we've got to demonstrate that, uh, yes, I'm the candidate best position to win. Uh, I'm the candidate best position to govern. And it's one thing for folks to decide they, they take a liking to you. This is about making sure they understand what I'm offering the country, can visualize the presidency that I'm trying to build and understand why it's uh, better than, than what my competitors are putting forward. I'll play make-believe theater here for a minute, but I just got back from Iowa and New Hampshire. New Hampshire is not quite as engaged right now as Iowa is, makes sense. But if you if your wish comes true and you're top three in Iowa and the it moves into New Hampshire during those eight days where it's Warren versus you and potentially Biden or somebody else, what is your elevator pitch at that point when things have to get very simple and uh, and, and, and pretty clear in contrast uh, particularly to Elizabeth Warren. What would be your pitch to a New Hampshire voter during that week where you got a catcher? It's been my way of solving the problems that got us here. It can unify the country instead of divide it. You know, New Hampshire's got a lot of a, a real independent streak. A lot of people who make crossover the aisle, especially in an election like this. They're looking for somebody who maybe doesn't agree with them, but uh, uh, on every single issue, but for, represents an alternative to what this president has done to the Republican Party. And when you come forward with bold ideas, but also uh, a roadmap to get those ideas done that, that can actually bring Americans together, I think that's what most people want in, in each of the early states. But I think that will especially resonate in New Hampshire. Well, listen, man, it's good of you to join us. I know you've got a pack of what we used to call ink-stained wretches in my day <laughs> out there. But good luck on – it's not called the Straight Talk Express, right? You're still trying to name your bus. Is that right? No, uh, that's right. I'm still waiting. I'm, maybe Mike Murphy will appear to me in a dream and, and reveal the, what <laughs> the name of the bus ought to be. I'm not, I'm not uh, sure. That's yet. not a dream. That's a nightmare. You, yeah, no, that's yeah, a nightmare. You don't want that. But uh, I'll give you one old tip from the McCain campaign, which is water down the coffee so they're not really getting the caffeine and flood them with sugary donuts <laughs> so they go into a coma at about 1030. It helps on the follow-up questions. Trust me. Yeah, there you go. I like that. We got a lot of gummy bears on board, but I hadn't thought about the donuts. <laughs> no, huge donuts. We used to feed them like uh, uh, chiclets to the media. Oh, that's good. Good to be with you, Pete. Thanks for having us on. So interesting chat with Pete there. I thought the most interesting piece of it was his answer to your question at the end when you asked him what he would say if he arrived in New Hampshire and it was he and Elizabeth Warren in a kind of head-to-head. And he, he was more forward-leaning than he's been in the past. Yeah, I was trying to frame that one. So, okay, you got eight days, you know, no no more uh, long answers here. What's your elevator pitch? And I thought it was pretty good, though. It still needs some more teeth. You know, the 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 Medicare for all thing is not only trouble in the general, the, the data is pretty clear. It's trouble in the Iowa caucus and trouble in the New Hampshire primary. So if he needs a weapon against her, he doesn't need to be shy about that. And he's learning. He took a little poke at her before, but, you know, that that eight days will be a, will be a, cage fight. And uh, I can see him starting to work himself into what he needs to be to 
do something there. He is. Well, it's, uh, we'll get the first indication of how far he's willing to go. I think October 15th at the, the next debate in Ohio, right. which also happens to be the day that you have to file your financials. Although if the Buttigieg campaign follows its pattern, it will release its numbers 15 days earlier if they think the numbers are good. And from that bounce in his voice, it sounds to me like the numbers are going to be just fine. Yeah, I thought we could trick him in, and I can argue it would be in his interest to say, you know, over 18 million cash or something like that today, make a little news and then put everybody else on defensive. Hamada, Hamada, they're only going to have three or four or two million left. Uh, he could have busted a move there. but I suspect, I suspect that his uh, intrepid communications director, Liz Smith, who was sitting right next to him, had a taser in hand because <laughs> she has her own plans for how to release that exactly. number. So he, he was never going to get that number out, Murphy. Before we get to the mailbag, I just want to tell you about a great new podcast that's going to answer some questions about our healthcare system that a lot of people are asking, like, what's up with the anti-vaxxers? Can crystals actually heal you? And who's our healthcare system really caring for? Dr. and former Detroit health director Abdul El Saeed tries to answer these questions and more by dissecting the stories behind the headlines and looking at them through the lens of public health. In Crooked Media's new 10-episode series, America Dissected with Abdul El Said. America Dissected is a 10-part series that explores what we're up against in our healthcare system and how we've solved problems like this before through rigorous science and competent government, working hand-in-glove and getting it done. Other topics on this podcast will be the cult of wellness, the high cost of prescription drugs, which I know worries so many people, the Flint water crisis with which Dr. El Said is really familiar, the opioid epidemic, antibiotic resistance and superbugs, and the overall state of our healthcare system. That's America Dissected with Abdul El Said. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. So subscribe now. As long as he doesn't go after the aluminum foil hat I'm wearing right now, it sounds good to me. Worth a listen. Yeah. Are you not an anti-vaxxer, are you? No, I like science, and I'm not so big on the healing crystals either, and I'm here in California, so <laughs> that's a controversial point of view to take. You are, but, but you're uh, in your basement hiding out from that whole crowd there, I know. They're out to get me. All right, X, time for our mailbag. If you want to send us a question, please do at hacksontap at gmail.com. That's hacksontap at gmail.com. And Brendan, great name, writes to us, do you see a possible surge in youth voter turnout in 2020 due to increasing fear of a climate crisis and frustration with a lack of policy prices? What do you think, X, will the climate issue drive out the youngins? Well, uh, that and, and among uh, other things, I think that if you look at the midterm turnout, there was a exponential increase in voting among voters under 29. I think it went from the teens to the low 30s. Uh, and I think that was a tell. There is a real sense of engagement among younger voters. The climate issue is driving it. I think Trump drives some of it. Inequality drives some of it. I think part of the reason that Elizabeth Warren is surging is that she's engaged young people in this race. So yeah, I, I think this is going to be much, much different than 2016. That's one of the concerns that Donald Trump must have because he does poorly among those voters and they seem poised and, as, as Trump would say, locked and loaded uh, to come out and vote. 
Yeah, that's my instinct, too. And I think the data backs it up. You know, presidential year elections always have much higher turnout, particularly among young people. So you have that going for you. Then you have the the winds of Trump's unpopularity and issues that resonate like climate. And then the last thing is every once in a while, and you guys had this, I think, in 2008, you have a presidential race where participating in it becomes kind of a approved social activity. I won't call it fashionable, but there is some coolness to the election being the thing. And I think this election is going to be so big and so loud and so high stakes that it'll have some of that factor. So I I expect guessing record turnout. This is not sort of a hacky thing to say. This is a idealistic thing to say. Okay. Viewers have been warned. I just have to say a word about this kid, Greta Thunberg, who's here for the UNGA conference. Man, talk about a charismatic figure, a teenager who's basically captured the imagination of people all over the world. You know, Trump was uh, complaining the other day that the the uh, Nobel process is rigged or he'd get one. Uh, it's not rigged, and it's going to really chafe him when she gets that, and I think it would be much deserved. So that's my little plug. No, no, she she is impressive, and it reminds me of how opinion changed on smoking. You know, one day smoking just kind of became uncool and climate activism. And look, I think there are some crazy excesses, but climate change is occurring and we have to be proactive about it. But the the way the last 36 months have made that issue a headline thing that people are really being energized by is a big social deal. And I think it will spill over into the elections. And she's at the vanguard. Well, I think part of it is and you can you know, you're in California there, which has been you know, overrun by fires. Uh, we've seen fires. We've seen floods. Yeah. You know, these epic one uh, once in a uh, millennia storms every year. You know, I think people are beginning to get the message. These are almost biblical signals. You know, when you describe them that way, uh, and I think people are getting the message in Singapore, where it build a new building now, you start eight feet above seawater. Yeah, you know that, that's the real deal. When your your new buildings are being built up on stilts, nobody's fooling around. What do you got? Joy, one of yours, folks. I'm a registered Republican from New Hampshire. Should I vote for Weld or the Appalachian Trail guy? Oh, smear. Poor Mark Sanford. He's got to shed that as his uh, handle for this race. Or should I change party affiliation and vote for Biden? I'm a little scared of Elizabeth Warren. You and me too, sister. Uh, well, that is your great choice as an all-powerful primary voter in New Hampshire, and it's a long tradition of of people kind of going to the primary where the action is. Look, I'm from Mark Sanford because I like that he's he's a good guy. I've known him a long time, uh, and he's uh, talking about the Republican Party's complete collapse on fiscal responsibility under Trump. But wait for that magic eight-day period in early February between Iowa and New Hampshire, when your New Hampshire vote is very important, watch both races and pick where you think you can do the the most good for free markets. That would be my advice. You if, remember, if you want to have an outcome, though, the Democratic priority, a uh, Democratic primary rather, is much more likely to have a, a outcome that's less predictable. I think Trump will be embarrassed. Uh, I think he he will underperform in New Hampshire, but he's still going to be the nominee. This is uh, so, always so interesting to try and divine where the independent vote goes or the swing vote goes. In, uh, in New Hampshire because of the open primary. You remember that really interesting situation that you were involved in in 2000. You had Bill yeah. Bradley running against Al Gore, right. McCain running against George W. Bush. Both were hoping to attract 
that sort of independent swing vote. It went heavily to McCain, probably sunk Bradley in New Hampshire. Yeah. My guess is that most of these folks are going to end up playing in the uh, Democratic primary because that's where the action is. No, you're totally right. And that the biggest contributor to McCain's huge upset uh, in New Hampshire was that Bradley collapsed and we scooped up a lot of that Volvo vote, so to speak, that was more fiscally conservative, but not registered Republican, those independents. We got one more question I think is worthwhile because I get this all the time. You know, I'm down at the holistic uh, health vitamin store here in LA and <laughs> yes. buying my crystals and getting my vegan taco. And uh, people ask me all this time, and this is a question from Joseph. Three candidates have led the polls consistently. Can you please explain what is a broker convention and do you think it's likely? We hear this every year. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, you know, there's a one in five chance or something of that uh, happening. I think what's more likely to happen is you're going to see a whole passel of candidates uh, out of this race in the next couple of months, more uh, right after the Iowa caucuses. And you're probably, it's probably going to ultimately become a race between two candidates and one of them will be uh, the nominee. You know, if it does go to a convention, the thing that is different this time is that because of Bernie Sanders' push, the superdelegates who had so much sway uh, are not going to play in the fir- on the first ballot. They come in on the second ballot. Right. So, you know, it opens the door to that potential. But I-, I would be surprised if Democrats didn't have a nominee by the convention. Yeah, this is one of these things you always hear about because it sounds so exciting. And I think it's a real long shot. Although this time... I think it's slightly more likely than last. I agree with you. One out of six, one out of five, only because, and this is back to fantasy theater, but if Warren comes out of Iowa big, but Joe manages to have a dramatic New Hampshire comeback, and sometimes these things, life kind of imitates art and the literary structure of what could be, and they go raging on, and then Biden has a couple of super gaffes and crumbles, and Bernie, who's well-funded <laughs> enough to hang around, or maybe Pete, or somebody has a little comeback, and it jumbles up, plus the Democratic rules are proportional delegates, so it's kind of yes. harder to get a big pile early, as you guys yes. proved uh, when you beat Hillary. You know, I can kind of see a ramshackle scenario to get to a broker convention, but I agree with you, highly unlikely. Especially if these guys continue to raise money, which is always what keeps people around. Just a reminder to our listeners, if you have questions, send them to hacksontap at gmail.com and uh, put your plug in, Murphy. Yeah, well, don't forget the algorithm. Think like Putin. When in doubt, go to the internet and on whatever podcasting platform you like to listen to us on, Stitcher, Radio.com, or of course, the all-powerful iTunes, leave a comment, click a star. That helps the Apple and other algorithms send the podcast to other people because we're trying to get the word out. We love the great feedback. Uh, We like that you guys like it, but we're trying to get other people to know about it because we're still a bit of a secret, although we're happy to say thanks to you. We've been growing every week. You can even email it to your friends. There's a little button down on iTunes. We hope you might try that. That's how we get the word out so people can hear about this podcast and join the conversation. Now, next week, we're doing our first live show. Tell us about it, Axe. Yeah, man. We're going to be down in Austin, Texas at the Texas Tribune Festival there. And we have a uh, a special guest, uh, a Texan uh, of great renown, Carl Rove, who's going to join us and kick the ball around with us. A, a super hack. Indeed. He'll feel at home with us. Going to be fun. 
in front of a live audience down there at Austin at the Texas Tribune Festival of Ideas. They've got a website. You can check it out. And uh, we're really looking forward to that. So, Axe, see you in Texas. See you then, man. Bring your uh, Stetson. (laughs) I have one. (laughs) 